So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Joseph Margulis, who's a professor of law and government at Cornell. He was counsel of record in Rasul versus Bush 2004, involving detentions at Guantanamo Bay Naval Station. His, his books include Guantanamo and the Abuse of Presidential Power and What Changed When Everything Changed 9-11 and the Making of National Identity. We are not going to be talking about Guantanamo today. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're going to be talking about something called gentrification. And I'm wondering, this may seem like a really basic question, but I'm wondering if you could just start by telling the audience what gentrification is and how it happens. So there are a lot of definitions of gentrification, but the standard is um, the um, uh, transformation of a neighborhood. And I use neighborhood generally instead of a lot of people use the word community. I use neighborhood, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, an area that was distressed as a result of disinvestment and a historical process that led to it becoming um, a relatively higher concentration of uh, underused capital, et cetera. And um, gentrification occurs when capital flows into that neighborhood in the form of different uh, price point housing, different business use, etc. And the effect over time is to raise rents, raise costs, uh, uh, introduce a different, um, often socioeconomic and sometimes uh, racial character to the neighborhood. And it frequently leads to displacement, that is folks who had lived there uh, in the neighborhood being forced out because of the change in the character of the neighborhood, either because the prices go up or just because it doesn't feel like home anymore. So gentrification is often associated with uh, displacement of a longstanding population uh, by a new population moving in. How does capital decide which neighborhood to move into and when? So capital has one ambition. (laughs) It has always had only one ambition, and that Mm -hmm. is to grow. Capital wants to get bigger. So it goes where it believes uh, there is a possibility for it to uh, increase its size. Capital looks for, in the the context of... um, housing and neighborhood, quote, development, capital looks for neighborhoods that are, that are, that have the potential for change, um, where capital can purchase land uh, for cheap and sell it for dear. And in that way, capital grows. Uh, capital has no commitment to a neighborhood. It doesn't uh, it's, it's not invested in, in the place. It only seeks to grow. Uh, And so when a neighborhood is distressed, but has the potential to transform into something more valuable, that is more valuable by the market standards, capital will flood in. uh, And those are gentrifying neighborhoods. Is there an, I mean, I guess I'm wondering if there's an enemy, is there someone to blame for this? Or is it just a process which happens like the coming of, of a hurricane? Yes, I think that there are there are things to blame when it comes to neighborhoods. We, that is, the government, takes steps 
that encourages uh, this process of capital flowing in. So that's what opportunity zones are, for instance. Opportunity zones are the designation of areas that are um, that within that area, capital development is promoted. And those are created by government. And um, the benefits that accrue to those who invest there are free of taxation or taxed at a different rate. There's various forms in which government encourages capital to go to certain places. And so it's not a neutral process. Moreover, the process by which certain neighborhoods became distressed, the disinvestment, the white flight, the segregation, that's not a neutral process. So it, it doesn't just happen. Capital moves in a way that we can direct it. We can encourage it in one way or another that's either responsive and respectful to, of um, uh, uh, distressed communities and, and distressed and folks who live there, or we can do it in a way that's indifferent to them. So I want to talk a little bit about the alternatives. You, you talk in an article you wrote um, for the Boston Review about something called trusts. And I was not familiar with this idea, but it, it sounds, you know, frankly, pretty exciting. So what would that model look like? In my article in Boston Review, and I, I've, I've written it up in a couple of places, in, including in a book called uh, Thanks for Everything, Now Get Out. Um, <laughs> and, and the idea of the book is it's it's a it's a deep dive into one neighborhood in Providence, Rhode Island, um, a neighborhood called Olneyville, and Olneyville was one of those places that was um, <clears throat> badly badly distressed. It's an old Providence is an old textile town, and Olneyville was the center of the um, textile industry, and it fell on very hard times when the textile uh, sector collapsed, starting in around the. 40s and 50s. Um, and Olneyville became a really, really rough neighborhood uh, for decades. And gradually, uh, through the work of the conscientious, diligent work of advocates and activists and neighborhood residents, community groups, Olneyville turned itself around. I shouldn't say that, that makes it sound too passive. People mm -hmm. in Olneyville pulled mm -hmm. Olneyville out of the um, pit it had fall, it had been pushed into. There's no passive voice here, and and so you think, well, this is great. This is a success. This is a this is a, a celebration. This is a great story. But what I discovered is that the price of this transformation that they affected was to make Olneyville suddenly irresistible. And it is on the threshold of this um, gentrification that has affected so many other cities around the country. So the the feeling there is, well, thanks for everything. We did all this work mm -hmm. and now we're going to be pushed out. Thanks for everything. Now get out. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the trust, the neighborhood trust, was to um, allow for this kind of a successful development, successful transformation without this gentrification and displacement. And the model of the neighborhood trust, which is now uh, being uh, adopted in a number of places, um, is 
tries to address two things that um, are missing in our current model of, of neighborhood development. Um, one is the current model empowers the wrong people. Uh, and the second problem is it doesn't decommodify enough property. And I know this is an economics podcast, so you'll have a sense for what decommodify means. But um, for those- well, No, no, because maybe actually, maybe it's worth getting into. What does that mean to decommodify? Okay. So you need to take it out of the market. You need to make it so that property can't come in and buy it. That's the key to decommodification. And the way that's done, right? So it's no longer a commodity. And the way that's done is to put it in trust, in a trust, like a trust account. Um, and there are um, community trusts that do this on a small scale, uh, and they put property, uh, a, a group of buildings or a, an apartment complex or um, <clears throat> a series of uh, uh, houses in a, in, on a couple streets, it's usually on a fairly small scale, into the trust so that um, they're owned by the members of the trust. And the trust could be as big or as small as you want. It could be a neighborhood, it could be a whole, it, it, it could be large, it could be small, uh, it could be just a family. Um, and that means the property that's in it can't be sold except by agreement of the members of the trust. So nobody can come along and just offer an owner X dollars, mm -hmm. uh, and then they sell it, um, and the, and and uh, that you know begins the process of displacement and and um, gentrification. So you're putting the property into a trust, and I want to do this on a much much larger scale than um, just a community land trust. Um, secures that property from. Um, uh, uh, gentrification. It secures it for long-term ownership by the residents of the neighborhood. And the second problem that needs to be addressed by a, a neighborhood trust is one of the problems with um, neighborhood development in the United States today is the, the, the group that we really empower are the network of nonprofit organizations that exist in any distressed neighborhood. Um, they're by and large extremely well-intended, um, uh, by and large run by uh, better educated, um, often white uh, um, uh, uh, progressive thinkers who want to do right by the neighborhood, but who frequently are not from the neighborhood, don't live in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, and the power accrues to them because they manage the funds that come into the neighborhood, funds that come into the neighborhood, either through government or through philanthropy or foundations or et cetera. Uh, and so they end up having control effective control over the direction of that money, the use of that money. And it doesn't empower the folks who need to be empowered in order to protect their neighborhood. And that is the folks who live there. Um, so the idea of the trust is to put neighborhood residents 
uh, in control of all the resources that are and that flow into the neighborhood. So you empower the right people and you allow them to decommodify property at scale and that stabilizes the neighborhood and um, creates a, a body of expertise in the neighborhood that um, gives it long-term political uh, power. That is very interesting, but I guess I, I wonder if you decommodify things, where, when you talk about the resources coming into the neighborhood, where are those resources? If it's if it's not going to be capital coming in and making, you know, quote unquote, developing or making improvements, you know, what what do they have control over besides this property which they can't sell? Um, they there 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 is money coming into these neighborhoods. It's it's not enough, mm -hmm. um, but there is money coming into these neighborhoods. Uh, I think the amount that com it comes in through, as I said, through government and through philanthropy and foundations and so on, I think there should be more. Um, and I think that government ought to fund it to a, a much greater extent to make up for the um, disinvestment that has taken place over decades. But what's different is that money is not presently managed by the neighborhood. It's not managed by neighborhood residents. It's managed by outsiders. I think that what we ought to do is um, uh, create a trust account, just like rich folks have trust accounts uh, where this money can grow in the market, but it's controlled in the trust by the trust. Uh, there are models for that. That's not that, that things mm -hmm. like that exist. Um, but, it, you know, it requires a considerable amount of funding. Right. Can, maybe you can talk about the, some models that exist already that are that are exciting for you. Well, there's um, after my um, first article describing this appeared, um, there were two organizations that created neighborhood trusts. One of them is um, in Philadelphia, on the west side of Philadelphia, in a tough, tough uh, neighborhood in Philadelphia, but that was also on the edge, literally on the edge of gentrification. I went and visited it. Uh, and 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 worked with the folks there, and they and they walked me through the neighborhood. And it used to be it's it's a neighborhood called Kensington um, in Philly, and it used to be the hub for um, the heroin trade on the East Coast. It was a it was a tough tough neighborhood, but literally at the southern edge of it. Um, you could see the gentrification. You could literally cross the street. You could see the encroaching gentrification, mm -hmm. the construction that was going on uh, um, on the street, and the new restaurants that were coming in, and the um, uh, new parks that were being built. And that was just pushing forward, uh, and it would eventually lead to uh, the displacement of the folks who had lived in Kensington and had endured these conditions for so long. So the Kensington Neighborhood Trust was created in order to uh, prevent that by creating the country's first neighborhood trust and decommodifying property along um, Kensington Avenue uh, and uh, protecting it from uh, purchase. Um, and they're working in conjunction with um, uh, neighborhood groups to uh, in collaboration to um, engage 
um, the neighborhood as as thoroughly as possible. And it's and it's you know knock on wood it's it's new it's fresh mm-hmm. um, but it's it's successful. I think it's going to be successful. And another place um, is. Um, a group, I, I'm blanking now on the name of it. Oops, it's just slipped out of my head. But they, they're based in Kansas City. And they create something called a mixed income neighborhood trust, uh, which responds to your question about how do you bring in capital. Mm-hmm. They are trying to, they're trying to tweak my model in a way that's exciting. Um, they're trying to co-op gentrification by creating um, dual uh, income spaces. So, for instance, there'll be a townhouse with an upstairs and a downstairs apartments, um, and they'll rent the top one. That'll be the, the building will be owned by the trust, and they'll rent the top unit at market rates, and those market rates will fund or support a reduced rate for someone of low income uh, in the bottom apartment in the bottom unit. But but none of, neither of the units can be sold because they're all in the trust. Mm-hmm. So that way you achieve a an influx of capital, but it's controlled, uh, and b um, some movement towards um, diversity within a neighborhood, uh, and that too has been very successful. They have models now in Boston, um, Oklahoma, um, Kansas City, and uh, others that are you know, they always have new ones that are coming online. So, you know, there's a real need for what I'm describing here. Everybody recognizes the risk. The problem of gentrification and displacement is old, um, but there haven't been um, strategies that can prevent it well. And so that's the goal. No, that, that is really exciting. Do you ever get pushback from people in the community who are being, or in the neighborhoods who are being displaced because say they say, hey, look, you know, we would like to be able to own our own property and decommodifying it means that one way that we enter the American middle class or have the American dream is, is sort of being taken away from us because you know that's what traditionally home ownership has been. Or from people who say, look, like the development which brings in nice coffee shops also brings in, it makes the neighborhood safer. And you know, we want street lamps that work and if they only work because capital is there, does that you ever hear that? Oh, yeah. Um, and there's a number of responses to it. Let, let me take the second one first. The, the, the first one you're describing is really, really important. And the, the short answer to it is um, no property, nobody's forced out of their property. <laughs> and if you own a house mm-hmm. and, and you want to sell it for what the market will bear, you have every right to do that, and the trust doesn't seize anybody's property. So that's the that's the short answer to it. Um, but there's, I'll come back to it after I address your second one. The the second thing is, look, it is a morally bankrupt observation to say that the only way that we can create a safe neighborhood is by threatening displacement, right? Because that's really what that. But the second question implies. It says, well, you know the. We everybody wants safe neighborhoods, and the only way to do that is to have capital flood in and to raise prices mm-hmm. uh, that makes it impossible for folks to stay there. So the poor have to go off to another uh, neighborhood that is unsafe. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a morally bankrupt statement to make. And if you're really saying 
that only the rich get to live in safe neighborhoods, then you're saying that capitalism is a failure, right? And, and, and we should just say that, right? And I don't think people want, want to say that. So there should be a moral obligation to create safe neighborhoods without kicking people out. Um, as to the first one, um, the, um, the idea is the trust purchases property at market rates. So the, the trust, it can happen several ways. The property can come into the trust either when new housing is built, right? So nobody owns it yet, um, or it purchased property that's there. A lot of times what it's purchasing is because in these distressed neighborhoods, there's a lot of abandoned property. There's a lot of abandoned property. Most of it's owned by the city. And the city can sell that to the trust mm -hmm. or give that to the trust at a reduced rate. So it's not taking property that, it's not seizing anybody's property at a below market rate. It's acquiring it at a market rate. And then it's making it available to folks who otherwise couldn't have um, uh, safe, uh, affordable housing in a in a quality neighborhood because it's it's just not available, um, and it stays affordable because the person who comes into that unit, let's say it's a house, you have what's called shared equity. Um, the person who buys a house that's in the trust only buys the physical space above ground. They only buy the house. They don't mm -hmm. buy the land underneath it. I see. And they, um, as a result, they, they can buy for a much lower rate um, because they're not buying the whole bundle of, of rights. Um, and so when they sell it, all they sell is the, 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 the space above the, the house. Um, and that grows in value uh, and so that that achieves some of the pieces of the move into the middle class that you're describing, improvement in um, credit rating because they've been paying a mortgage for all these years, for however long they've been there, some increase in value, et cetera. And they can use that to launch into um, uh, traditional ownership where they own the whole whole bundle of rights. But so, so it's sort of an, an, an in-between stage for folks. And without that, they wouldn't be able to purchase at all. Um, so while the thing you say is true, uh, and I, people who own their home in a gentrifying area, that has the potential to be worth a great deal of money. And no one can say to them, uh, you shouldn't sell it because it'll contribute to gentrification. Uh, that's not right. Um, but if the trust buys it instead, then it prevents the next the next step from the next purchase uh, to contribute to gentrification. Is that clear to you? It makes sense. Yeah, tell, tell, I'm going to put it a different way and tell me if I have it right. I mean, it seems like what you're saying is we make housing as much as, as we can. We make housing something that you can live in, but you don't speculate on it. And so, Oh, absolutely right. That's absolutely I see, right. I yes. see. Housing, okay. as an economic matter, housing should not be uh, a, a speculative asset. It should be the place where you live. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I, a last question, actually, I just want to go back to the beginning of the conversation where you were talking about this neighborhood in Providence and you were saying, you know, by the 1950s, it was already 
being decimated because of yeah, it was job right. losses and, and the collapse of the textile industry. Seems to me that I mean your your idea is, is really exciting. And I now that you're speaking about it, it makes me, you know, I grew up in the amalgamated in the Bronx. And um it, it sounds like a very similar thing. Um it was a I don't know if you're familiar with this with this area, but um it's five in Cortland Park in the Bronx and it's sure, yeah, sure. A couple of acres and maybe more than a couple. It's it's big space. And um basically when my parents went into the apartment, they bought the apartment at ten thousand bucks or something like that. And then when they sold, they sold for I think it was basically ten thousand dollars plus whatever inflation had been after that period. But it was the same idea. And it was it was basically middle class housing for people who there was an income limit and um, it was for people. Many people work for the city or the state, uh, a working class community. Um, and it was a good place. It was a good place to grow up, beautiful apartment. And we didn't pay much in maintenance. Um, but at the same time, it seems like that's a huge part of a solution for allowing people to live better lives. But at the same time, to go back to the 1940s and 50s, there also seems to be kind of a, at the root of this, a, a, an employment problem, a job problem. So you kind of solve the housing issue and then but this, the jobs are, are, are largely missing from well-paying jobs from these communities. Is there, a, is there a way to bring those jobs back or to make the jobs that we have here pay better or, or be better? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, my book didn't look at the jobs part of it, um, but of course you're right. Um, and, you know, one of the exciting things about, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've been following this as well. One of the exciting things that's going on in the, in the current economy is, um, Closing the wage gap between um, black and white and black and, and, and white and Hispanic. Um, it's now at a, uh, the, the wage gap is closer than it's ever been. And mm. the unemployment rates are closer than they have uh, ever been. Though uh, unemployment rate for uh, African-Americans is 4.7% compared to, I think, 3.1%. I mean, it's, it's exceptionally low. Mm-hmm. For all um, demographic groups, it's below 5%. So it, uh, exceptionally high levels of employment and wage growth is happening. Um, so there is some move towards, in some places, um, uh, this kind of um, uh, wage parity that I mean, it is a move towards. We certainly have not achieved wage parity. We haven't achieved wage wage parity uh, across ethnic groups, across racial groups, across gender groups at all. Um, but there is some progress being made in the economy uh, recently, post pandemic, that is uh, encouraging, and one hopes it doesn't collapse as the Fed is fighting uh, inflation. Um, <clears throat> And that is a complement to um, keeping rents under control, keeping costs under control. Either mm-hmm. um, you know, so it goes hand in hand with uh, what a trust, what a neighborhood trust could provide. Uh, and but of course, there's more than that, right? You you need you need more than simply um, for a neighborhood 
look, the 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 moral um, proposition that animated the book that I wrote is everybody, everybody deserves to live in a thriving neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That's it. That point blank. Just you know, put a period there. Everybody deserves to live in a thriving neighborhood, right? And so you know, you need to do things like create a living wage um, and divert services that have been uh, historically shifted um, to the bias towards wealth into neighborhoods that have been underserved, right? Because everybody ought to have uh, streets without gaping potholes and everybody ought to have streetlights that work and a bus station, um, you know, a bus stop that's not dangerous because it's a, 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 a dark corner. And so that's a matter of, you know, moving resources to make that happen mm-hmm. and so in, in conjunction. You know, it's government acting in conjunction with the private sector and employers. There are places, however, what you know, that have no minimum wage that are relying on the federal minimum wage, uh, have a tax structure that um, like Tennessee, for instance, is a good example. Tennessee has no minimum wage. So the federal minimum wage is the is the max there or the minimum there. Um, and their tax structure, um, uh, they don't have an income tax. So they systematically rely very, very heavily on sales tax. Well, sales taxes are notoriously regressive. Um, uh, that is, they hit the poor much harder than the wealthy. And that's how Tennessee funds uh, much of its um, uh, fisc. Well, that's going to lead to... Um, distressed neighborhoods becoming increasingly distressed. And the only way to fix neighborhoods is through the kind of flood of capital that produces displacement, which is what's happening in places like Nashville. So, you know, you have a choice. Yeah. I mean, what's so interesting about what you're saying is, and I, my friends and I, we try to shop at local, support local businesses as a way to resist gentrification. But what you're saying here is that, again, tell me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you're saying that, you know, that may be nice, but that's kind of an individualistic way to, or an individualist way of approaching the problem, but creating trust or diverting resources from one part of the um, society to another and and using the state to do that, that, that sounds, like a collective process. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is a collective process. It is a recognition of the power of the group. You know, one of the things that I used to hear when I go to Oneyville and I talk to these um, nonprofits that, you know, again, I'm not casting aspersions. These are, these are good people who run these nonprofits. Generally speaking, Oneyville is now a very heavily Latinx neighborhood. Um, and these nonprofits were run mostly by whites. Um, and they would say that I, I think they didn't even hear themselves saying that when I would talk about neighborhood empowerment and saying the re- resources should go to the, the neighborhood residents. They'd, one woman actually said to me, that's a great idea, but they're just not ready. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> my experience in these neighborhoods the neighborhood is not the problem. The neighborhood is the solution. There's incredible expertise in the neighborhood. The neighborhood residents, they know what the problems are. They know what the problems are. 
in terms of transportation, in terms of housing, in terms of safety, in terms of relationships to the police, the school, they know. Uh, and they need to be empowered to uh, act on that knowledge. That expertise exists. And a group of individuals can create a, co a collective that can achieve change, lasting, durable change. And in fact, it's more than that. The truth is, that's the only time change ever happens. It only happens when from below it is demanded. Uh Power in the United States does not give up its status freely. Uh, that's, that's just a that's just the fact of history.